This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. And welcome to another episode of the Bird Hugger Podcast. Today, we're happy to have as our guest Heather McCargo from Wild Seed Project. We'll be talking about native plants for shady landscapes. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Our guest today really needs no introduction. That's because she's been on the show before. The interview we did with her about sowing native seeds in winter was undoubtedly one of the most popular shows we've done since the inception of Bird Hugger. We've received many, many emails from people asking us to bring her back on the show, and we finally have her back. Okay, and now I'd like to welcome back Heather McCargo to the show. Heather, it's so great to have you back. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Yes, and also to discuss the topic, which is something in 80 episodes I haven't really touched on yet, and that is the issue of shade or planting in shade. But first of all, could you tell us what all the latest news is at Wild Seed Project? Well, we've grown a lot in the last couple of years, or really since our beginning. So there's now nine full-time staff, and I am retired from staff now. I still board of director, and we have a great group team there. And one of the really exciting things we're doing is making a native seed center. We partnered with a local land trust, the Cape Elizabeth Land Trust, to set something up on one of their properties. And it will take a while to build it all, but just a place where we can have plots of the mother plants that we collect the seeds from and as many as possible with the known wild type origin of those seeds and a way of expanding them. And also just for people to be able to see how we do it all. You know, whenever I or any of the new staff go out and teach all the native seed sowing, people love to see it in action. So it'll be a great chance to do that. So it's called Turkey Hill Farm in Cape Elizabeth, and that's where our new Native Seed Center will be. That is wonderful. And I understand you have a new publication coming out soon, too. It already came out. It's our guide to native shrubs. So when I talked to you last time, we had just released our first guide, which was on native trees. And then 
The second guide was on native ground covers, and then the one this year is on native shrubs. So it will cover what we'll talk about today of the different native plants that grow well in shady landscapes. If people love print publications and guidance, that's one way you can get it. We also have blogs, you know, free access on our website to a lot of this information too. But so it's already been released. You can purchase it on our website, or if you become a member, you get the latest issue already. And I highly recommend all three. The trio together really makes a useful series of publications. Well, that is great to hear. Now, getting to the topic of the day, which is shade and plants that grow in shade. I remember before I was converted to native gardening, you know, I was your typical non-native perennial gardener, and I would go to the nursery or the garden center And every single plant, and there were tons of them, were all suited for sun, full sun, part sun. And then if I asked anyone, do you have any plants for shade? They would find someone to kind of take me around the back to this very small section. (laughs) (laughs) And there would be five or six, you know, you'd be the hosta, tiarella, you know, all the (laughs) non-natives that you're so used to planting in those shady spots. So has there been some sort of stigmatic or stigma carryover <laughs> to the native plant world? I mean, is that how people are regarding native plants that grow in shade? Are they harder to find or are harder to learn about? So they are a little harder to find. And again, on our website, we have a great where to buy native plants of a bunch of nurseries in the Northeast that we have vetted for offering more native plants whenever possible ones grown from seed. And as a propagator, and my expertise is in the plants of the woodland understory, and many of them are more slow growing. So not all of them, but many of them. And so that's one of the reasons. And yes, most people think hosta and bark mulch is the only solution to this shade. And what I love to tell people is, you know, we live in the great eastern deciduous forest biome. It's the largest temperate woodland area in the world. And despite 500 years of disruption since colonists first landed here, it's still the largest temperate woodland. And we have hundreds of beautiful native species that thrive in the shade. And I do think gardeners are particularly, I find they're the most resistant to planting trees because they think they can't grow anything under the shade. And I think some of this stems from farming. You know, most of our crops that we grow are from tropical or Mediterranean climates. And so they do need more sun. So if you want to grow the most vegetables in your yard. It's true you need sun. It's not true that there aren't ones that can tolerate some shade. But man, you know, the climate is changing and getting hotter and wetter and drier. And, you know, those torrential rains and a canopy of trees is the best way to capture and store that rainwater. And the vertical vegetation is very effective at buffering the temperature. It also, of course, will capture more carbon dioxide and turn it into store it than just a ground layer of vegetation. We need more shady landscapes, not less shady landscapes. And fortunately, we come from a part of the world that has a huge diversity of species, and it's a big part of 
what I'm dedicated to inspiring people. It's also, you know, there are less weeds when you garden in the shade. You know, some of our most annoying weeds are the sun-loving species, so it makes a more low-maintenance landscape. But I do find my gardening friends, even some of my native plant gardening friends, you know, I'll be like, oh, you know, this garden's looking great, but you still need more woody plants. Why haven't you planted a few acorns to get some oak trees started and they're like oh i don't want to shade this area out so first of all i usually tell people okay if you're around in 30 years you know these are people over 50 and you plant an oak tree now and you really want to cut it down i'll let you but the reality is we just have so many great plants that grow in these areas and so people can see what these look like after listening to this podcast on the Wild Seed Project website, you can read the blog I've written called In the Shade, Gardening with Native Plants of the Woodland Understory. I've also done Creating Canopy about planting native canopy trees and then the small flowering trees. And then, of course, our native guides also have all of this information and great pictures so that people can get the visuals to go with it. But, you know, nurseries have become, a lot of nurseries are more like supermarkets now where they just buy stuff in and they not only are a a lot of the plants exotics, but they often don't know where they come from in the world. And there are many exotic plants sold at nurseries that would be from the forest in Asia, China, you know, the temperate Asia, and also from Europe. And both of those temperate forests are even more diminished than ours in many instances. But we got plenty of great plants to choose from from our area. So can you maybe talk about the fundamental differences between sun-loving plants and shade-loving plants? Well, all plants, if they're native, feed our local fauna, you know, both serve as host plants to the insects, whether they're in the sun or shade. You know, a lot of people think to have a pollinator landscape, you've got to have a sunny landscape. And that's not true. We, like all of our woodland plants get pollinated by insects, not the ferns, of course, they're wind pollinated, but all the flowering plants have a whole host of woodland insects that pollinate them. And of course, woodland animals that disperse the seeds. So some of the woodland wildflowers, the seeds are actually dispersed by ants. Others that have a fleshy fruit, like the baneberry, they get eaten by birds or small mammals that take them off. Our traditional gardening style isn't very natural. And so what I like to do to get people inspired to garden native is to talk about what are the characteristics of a healthy, diverse forest. And you want to use that as a model for design. So for instance, in a healthy forest, and not got lots of examples that aren't, so you need to go to a nature reserve maybe to see this for yourself in your area, but they're layers of vegetation. You've got the canopy trees, and they're the ones that get all the sun because their leaves are up in the sunlight. Then you've got the mid-story, and in that mid-story, you're going to have both the future canopy trees, which are sometimes the same species that are in the canopy, sometimes new species that are moving in, which you know especially should be happening now with climate change. And then you've got the understory, and so that might also be seedlings of future canopy trees, 
but then it's a whole host of understory, small trees and shrubs. And then the herbaceous layer, there are some woodland grasses and sedges that grow in the shade, and then many species of ferns, which are really great in a shady landscape, especially a densely shaded landscape, and then all the different species of wildflower. Some of our woodland asters and goldenrod species, like the blue stem goldenrod, zigzag goldenrod, and then whitewood aster, heart-leafed aster, blue aster. These are some of the top pollinator and supporting of Leptoptera, the butterfly and moth family. And they're some of the quickest and easiest to establish in the landscape. And then, of course, there's all kind of other species like bloodroot or foam flower, like you were talking about. And most of the foam flowers you see in nurseries now are no longer the straight species. They've been all hybridized with heucheras, of which we do have Eastern native species and some Western species. So they're not, you know, the wild types. They don't support as much biodiversity as if you plant the straight species. But we've got a, lots of different species, but it's those layers of vegetation that are really important. Then the other thing that's really different that you can model off of a natural forest is how nutrients are recycled. So, you know, the, every fall, this huge amount of leaf litter that accumulates on the forest floor as those deciduous trees drop their leaves. And even evergreen plants do drop some leaves, just not all of them every year. But also twigs, branches, rotting logs, and then all the animals that live in the forest, both if they die or their feces drops down in the forest floor. And this layer of decaying matter is a huge important way that nutrients are recycled in a forest. And then, of course, they also create a protective, like insulating blanket for both over the winter and also for the nesting habitat of all kinds of species of butterflies and birds and small mammals like salamanders and little rodents. You know, everybody loves the swallowtail butterfly, for instance, or lunamaws. Those leptopter, they need our native trees and shrubs for their reproduction. And then what they do is drop down and pupate over the winter in that leaf litter. So it's really important that people don't take that just rake that all away. That's one way we both wiped out the pollinators and wiped out a lot of important habitat. And then, of course, all the different species of fungi and the other millions of microscopic microorganisms in the soil, they are what help break down this organic matter and make it available to future, to the plants growing in next year. So, you know, how do you mimic that in a garden? You leave the leaves. You don't rake them all away. And people always seem to think that their plants aren't going to be able to come up through the leaves. And that's just not true. That's, you know, what do you think happens in the forest all the time? I mean, I suppose in a suburban or yard, you might have a fence that faces to the north or the a direction that the leaves can bank up really densely, you know, in high wind areas, and you might need to lighten those and spread them somewhere else. But 
leaving the leaves is really important and wherever possible, you know, include in your garden design a snag of a dead tree. You can cut the high branches off so they don't fall on you, but leaving a snag or a rotting log, you know, if you have a tree that's come down, you don't need to come in and rip out that stump. Instead, you can cut it either flush to the ground or you can leave it a foot high. If you drill holes in the top of that stump, water will pool in it and both provide moisture for little critters and it will help that stump rot more quickly. And those underground roots of that rotting log will really add a lot of food for the soil life. Then the other thing that's really, really different about the woodland is the nature of the light in a wooded landscape. So, you know, pretty much every landscape, if you have a building on it, you've got shade. So the north side of the buildings right up against the building is probably going to get no direct sunlight. The east and west side of the building might get either the morning or afternoon sun. And then deciduous trees, canopy trees provide a different, you know, more dappled light than conifers and conifers typically have more shallow roots and we have a whole lot of native plants that do grow happily with conifers. So when you have an east or west side of a building, I like to get people to add to layer their trees to have a canopy tree and some smaller understory trees so that they can get a little bit more dappled light on that east and west side, which will help those woodland plants thrive. And same thing even on the north side of the building where when the sun is really high in the middle of the summer, the direct sunlight will be coming closer to that north side of the building than it will in the spring and fall. So again, creating layers of woody plants to make more dappled light. And then you can plant the ground layer with all our different natives that thrive with that changing light levels, even from the spring to the fall. So those layers of vegetation, that's what you want to recreate in your landscape, not just having a yard, a big tree in the middle of the yard with lawn underneath it, because you might have a native oak in your yard, but if you mow right up to it, you wipe out a lot of the species that thrive in that oak tree, such as the butterfly and moth, which need to overwinter in the leaf litter underneath it. So that's a natural place to start a shady planting, which is first getting rid of the lawn. And I think the best way to do that is to put down either newspaper or cardboard, or you can now get brown paper mulch and then leaves on top of it to smother the lawn. And then you can, after a couple months, just plant right through that. Wow, that is great. And since we are the Bird Hugger podcast, I did want to add that birds absolutely rely on the shade of trees. They place their nests deep in the branches because the little babies cannot survive being in direct sun. So if you want a garden and you want birds in that garden, you need shade and you need trees. The uh, shade of trees is also vital for protection from predators. Birds can literally disappear in shade inside a tree, let's say if a hawk is chasing a songbird. And with the native trees, all our native trees are host plant for different butterfly and moth species. So this time of year, there's lots of teeny little caterpillars that have just hatched. And what the birds are doing up there now is eating those caterpillars and feeding to their babies. And most of those caterpillars 
Their destiny is to get eaten, not to defoliate the tree. They're really critical bird food for that. I've also really noticed, you know, I have different snags that I leave in my yard, and I don't do one right near the house where it would fall against the house, but I have them away from the buildings. And it's amazing how birds love to land also on mature birds, you know, grown-up birds on a dead branch, I think because they can get a good view and there's probably other insects in them too. So yes, woody plants, if you want to support birds, you've got to have more than just native plants on the ground. It's that three-dimensionality that the birds really thrive with. Right. And also I was going to bring up bumblebees. You know, when bumblebee queens emerge in the early spring, sometimes the only blossoms that are available to them are the native flowers that bloom in April and May, like the geranium, the violets, the bleeding heart, the columbine. If that queen bumblebee cannot stay alive and establish a colony, then that entire colony is lost. So these shade-loving natives are absolutely vital to bumblebee queens. Yeah, so like, for instance, take some native understory woody plants that bloom really early, like shadberry. That's one of our first native small flowering trees to bloom, spice bush, hobble bush viburnum, and even some of our native trees that are wind pollinated, like the maples and oaks, they actually, native bees still forage on their pollen. You know, pollen is a really high value food that they need as much as they need the nectar. And then, of course, violets. You know, violets are a great spring wildflower that's blooming really early that the pollinators love and thrive. You know, there are lots of shade-loving violet species. Redbuds, another one that blooms, you know, woodland understory tree, are different native dogwoods from the large bracked dogwood or up here in northern New England. We have a lot of the pagoda dogwood, which is a wonderful native tree. And then witch hazel, another great understory tree slash shrub. In fact, a lot of these native understory large shrubs, like spice bush, witch hazel, and shad, you can prune them up so they're like a small tree. When you buy them at the nursery as a bigger plant, they often have, they've kind of been pruned to be shrubby. I like to treat them as a either single or multi-stemmed small tree in my garden and then you can walk underneath them and they're really quite lovely and thrive in the shade. Witch hazel in a really shady spot really is very open and airy and it has these arching stems and then of course blooms in the fall but really makes a lovely small tree in a shady, especially in a dense shady landscape. Right. And then there are some trees like the American linden, Tilia americana, who can't establish themselves unless they have shade. So they need the shade of other trees or shrubs to grow. They use the first 10 years of their growth is in the shade. And after that 10th year, they just sort of burst forward and they become these standalone trees that can reach the sun. So there are several trees like that. Like the linden is an absolute pollinator powerhouse. 
Yeah. Same with the Ohio. You know, there's a bunch of native Buckeyes. They're not native to New England, just a little bit farther south, like where I grew up in West. I grew up outside of Pittsburgh. And our native Buckeyes, you never see them planted. They bloom in, you know, I have the Ohio Buckeye planted in my yard in Maine and it thrives here and those are blooming in May and the bumblebees are all visiting them and then of course there's the red buckeye which makes a lovely small tree and American chestnut that's a summer blooming canopy tree that is critical for the bumblebees too when they're blooming so we do have native trees that bumblebees the native bees also pollinate I was just thinking of northern black cherry. Northern black cherry Mm -hmm, is very sneaky. It loves to grow inside these wooded, shaded glades. (laughs) Yes. You don't even know you have it until they're about 10, 15 feet tall. And then you're like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And they make a beautiful yard tree. Tulip tree, another native canopy tree that has flowers in late spring and that supports the bumblebees. You know, it's one of the ones that have flowers with them. You're making me realize I should write something specifically just on our native canopy. So my blog I wrote called Small Flowering Trees. I did that for all the people who wanted to know a small native tree that they didn't feel like they had room in their yard for a native tree. And I'm like, okay, we got plenty of small ones. And how we did our tree guide too, we did that. We broke it into three sections. We cover about 30 species in it, but we did 10 in the small native flowering trees, then 10 in the mid-size, and then 10 in the canopy size. So we have lots of species to choose from, even here in northern New England. And then the mid-Atlantic, you know, the farther south you go, the more diversity of species there are because, remember, all of our native flora had to, was wiped out of the northeast during the ice ages and so have had to migrate back and they've only had 10,000 years to do that in. So that's why we have less diversity to the north. You go to the mid-Atlantic, there's a lot more species to choose from. Musselwood's another really great native tree and hop hornbeam for a really shady landscape that makes a nice garden and landscape plant and will grow well in full shade and tolerant of sun too. That's the amazing thing. A lot of our woodland plants and woody plants, 500 years ago, we had way more forest than we do now. And all the sun-loving natives probably had less space. So, you know, where were the sunny places? You know, there were areas where the indigenous people did burn and keep open. That's not so true in northern New England. But we also would have hurricanes and fires and occasional insect outbreaks that would set back the canopy tree and open up the forest floor. And that's where some of these sun-loving species would jump in. But they can tolerate being in full shade, they won't bloom as much. And then your tree gets defoliated one year by brown tail moth, for instance. And that gives the forest floor a chance to get some light and those species to thrive. And then the canopy closes in again. And so this waxing and waning, both of the canopy and the understory, all our forest plants have adapted to that. Right. So if you're going to be a native gardener, you've got to be able to live with that waxing and waning. 
Yes. yes. You have to let go of the controls a little bit. Yes. If we want to support nature, we've got to, as gardeners, be less controlling. And I once gave a talk on native ground covers and one of the participants raised his hand and said, but I like the look of one species in a huge area. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what's leading, you know, when you have a monoculture, you know, so just planting one native species of ground cover is not what you want to do either. And you can read, you know, I wrote a blog a few years ago on our website called Native Ground Covers, and now we have the whole guide on it. And the point is getting people to, even when you want to have a ground cover, to pick at least three species that like the same conditions and let them weave together, and then you will support more biodiversity. But yes, you know, trees, plants are going to grow and change over time. And when you plant a tree, first of all, that's putting a stake in to the future. And I don't care how old you are, you still need to plant trees. In fact, I'm 63. We, as the older generation, need to do that for our youth to say, we're invested in the future, you're going to have too, and I'm going to plant these trees, even though I may never get to see them mature. I'm still going to do it because I care about you and the life you're going to be leading. You know, there's a great botanical garden on Martha's Vineyard, the Poly Hill Arboretum. And the woman who founded that Polly Hill, she started it when she was 50 years old. And that's a time when people start saying, I'm not going to plant a tree because I'm not going to be around to see it. It's like, hey, come on. And that woman, I think she lived well into her 90s. And it was probably because she, in her later years, had invested in an interesting work that made her want to live and see those trees grow. Exactly. Don't use your age as an excuse not to plant a native tree. And really, all of our native trees, they do better. All trees do better when you plant them young. You know, buying a big specimen, you're doing that for yourself, which is, I guess, fine on some level. But in reality, the transplant shock of moving bigger trees, they are never going to establish as well as you plant a younger one whose root system will really be able to find its way in the world. And we're going to need our trees to get the best start they can in life because of this rapidly changing climate that we're dealing with. And, you know, I have in my yard in Portland, Maine, I have planted a mini forest, I like to call it. And I've got over 75 different species of woody plants planted in there. And there's not one of each. I've got multiple of many of them. And then another 80 species of native understory trees planted. And, you know, I'm sure in 10 years, some of the young trees I've planted, I will edit a few of them out, but I didn't make a big investment because I planted them as small trees. And I want to see who thrives there. And, you know, that's how when a forest grows, the woody plants are denser too. And then over time, some outcompete others or get knocked over or browsed and wiped back. So if you can plant lots of native woody plants and plant them more densely than how they will be in the future, you also, because we don't have that many examples of a mature forest, 
big canopy trees can be really close together. You know, you can have a 100, 200-year-old oak and maple trees that are only five feet apart and they're thriving together. They sort of become an island of forest. So that's one thing people can do in their yards. Instead of just planting one shade tree, plant a grove and they will also be more stable to high winds because their root systems will weave together and they'll each help hold each other up. So don't be afraid to create shade in your yard. We just have so many great plants and thrive in it. And it's really interesting. In fact, you know, gardeners, you know, we all have been guilty as gardeners of always wanting to keep finding new, interesting plants. And that's where... I really like to say these native species, people don't even know them anymore. The typical nurseries don't know them. Luckily, we've got a lot of new upstart native nurseries that can people can turn to. But there's a lot of great native species that have lost their place in our landscape. And we can bring them back, planting them in our yard. And they are beautiful and they will support so many other critters than the exotic species. And you can rest assured that you won't be pushing out our native fauna. They need a place to live and adding the native species. Now, you know, there are, while I in my yard have chosen to have it, I'm making it all native species. I am not a native Nazi. I recognize that people might have some other plants from other parts of the world. There's, I have lived in Europe and I've been to Asia. There are amazing plants from there. Just make sure if you're planting any exotics that they're not any of the invasive ones. And every state has published the invasive species for their state. And it's also really important to look south of your state for what are the invasives that are growing south of you because with the warming climate, it might not be a problem like in Maine or Vermont where you are now, but they will be in 10 or 20 years. We're going to be have the climate of Virginia in mid-century in New England. So you do want to look at the problem plants from those areas and make sure if you are keeping or planting any exotic shade plants that they're not going to be the future invasive species. Now, as we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to say about shade-loving plants for our listeners? Well, you know, yes, there's one other thing. And one is make sure if you are experienced gardener and you're adding some of the more slow-growing woodland natives, such as trillium, make sure you are only purchasing ones that have been nursery propagated. So trillium is a great example. You know, it's one of the reasons I don't, in my garden designs, I don't include it. You can propagate it. You know, I've grown thousands of trillion from seed, but they take seven years to reach blooming size. And trout lily is another woodland native that is often pillaged from the wild and sold in the nursery trade. Same with some of the native ferns. So make sure if you're getting the more slow-growing woodland wildflowers, not ones that have been dug from the wild and then just potted up and resold in the nurseries, which 
happens all the time. Pink lady slipper, that one is not able to be nursery propagated, so stay away from that. Jack in the pulpit is, again, not hard to propagate, but a lot of them are still dug from the wild and sold in the nursery trade. So make sure you ask. And I haven't written a lot extensively on that on the website, Wild Seed Project website. You can read my blog about poaching and native plants to know the species to look out for. So go to a botanic garden, or if you're lucky enough to have a knowledgeable native nursery in your area that's propagating, of course, support them and be willing to pay the price it takes to propagate these slow-growing woodland plants. But there are lots of quick and easy ones. Like I said, the woodland asters and goldenrod are great. Wild geraniums are really great native. Golden ground Council is easy. Make sure you have plenty of them to start in your landscape. Not supporting the further poaching of our native woodland plants in your garden. That's another really important thing to do as a native woodland gardener. And leave your leaves. You know, next fall, when they all fall down, don't rake them away. Of course, you can rake them off your paths and your sidewalk, but put them in your beds. Don't haul them away. Otherwise, you're preventing a lot of valuable nutrients being returned to your landscape and losing the overwintering habitat for all those important creatures. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us again. We always learn so much when you're on the show. My pleasure, Catherine. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye.